Welcome to the Restoration Living Podcast with our host, military chaplain and spiritual care director, James Johnson. With so many voices in this world fighting for our attention, it's easy to believe that we aren't good enough, that our past will always haunt us, and that we will never measure up. But the voice of God is telling us that we can live a life of restoration in Him. Our Heavenly Father doesn't want us to let our past decisions determine our present peace. Instead, He wants us to find that life of restoration in Him. So grab your Bibles and join us as we dig into God's Word to discover timeless truths and proper application for our lives today. When I was a kid, we would do a Christmas pageant service, whatever you want to call it, and we would reenact the Christmas story. We would, you know, people would dress up as Mary and Joseph, and somebody's kid would be the baby and hopefully wouldn't cry. And, you know, everybody would kind of play a part. And because I was in the church choir, the church choir became the angels, and we would sit in the choir loft and we would dress in white robes and we would sing and growing up that was just what i I kind of assumed angels did angels sat in heaven they surrounded god's throne and unless they got called on to do something else like go deliver a message that was their job they sat in heaven and angels sang to jesus all day long and worshiped him and you know that was just kind of what i had in, in my mind and i was talking to somebody you know many years later after i, I you know became a, a you know, young adult i guess and they were saying man I, I don't know if i want to go to heaven and i said well what do you mean he said i don't want to spend all of eternity sitting there singing songs all day long that just sounds like it would be terrible it would be boring and as i began to research into what happens when we die and do we just become angels or do we get harps and sing to God or all of those things, I I came to find out that the situation's a lot more complicated than I originally thought. You see, some of these, you know, beliefs that have crept into our consciousness as a society or especially as a church aren't really all that true, but they've just kind of become things we believed and I don't know if it's an example of the Mandela effect or if it's just the problem with tradition where people don't study the scriptures and they just believe what they're told or I don't know but some of the things that we have come to believe are about angels and heaven and the afterlife are, are just are just not true and as we have continued through our messages from the manger we've covered a lot of the main players so far but there's one that we haven't mentioned yet and besides you know the baby in the, in the manger you know jesus there's the angels and on most nativity sets above the uh, above the you know building the actual structure the manger itself there's an angel and i never really know what to do with that and and i was going to kind of just skip right over them because they don't really have much of a part to play except a little bit. And I think that the little bit, as I reflected on it, I thought that's actually a little bit that's actually really important. So we're going to take time in this session to dig into why did God send angels? Why didn't, if God can visit, you know, people and give them dreams, if God can speak, why did he send angels? And so as we look at this, we need to understand 
the context. So let's read some of the passages where we see the, you know, the, um, the actual idea of the angels, and we'll go from there. So as we start, you know, the, the passage we've already looked at in Luke chapter 1, which is where, um, you know, Mary gets visited by the angel Gabriel. Why are they called angels to start with? Well, the word angelos means messenger, um, and, and it's different derivatives. It's malach in Hebrew, and it's just a messenger. It's a heavenly being that God sends to give his messenger, or to give his message and serve as his messenger. The problem with that is not all heavenly beings are giving messages. But we have fallen into this cultural trap because we love to do this. We love to lump things into categories, and we have come to treat all heavenly beings as angels. But the reality is they're only angels if they deliver messages. You know, it's kind of like saying that postal, postal workers deliver the mail, and humans are postal workers that deliver the mail. But not every human being delivers mail. Some are plumbers, some are lawyers, some are doctors, some are, you know, t accountants, I mean, whatever, teachers. Just because you're a human being, an earthly being, doesn't mean you deliver letters and messages. Messages. Only male people do that, right? Or, you know, people that deliver messages in an office or something like that. So it is a, just like it would be a bad idea and an a, 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 a improper perspective to say that every human being delivers messages, it would be inappropriate to say that every heavenly being is an angel. So why do we call them angels? Well, the reality is, as we go through the Bible, we see that a lot of times when we translate words into angels, there's a different word used. You see, the word malach in Hebrew means messenger. But many other times that when we translate it into English as angels, it's actually a different word. It's the word Elohim. And so as we look at the idea of heavenly beings, man, where do we where do we get these ideas from? Well, as we study the scriptures, the Bible doesn't put a whole lot of time into explaining who are these heavenly beings? Where did they come from? And so as we look at different passages, we kind of have to piece some puzzles together. We know that there is a earthly world and we know that there's a spiritual world and we see this at the very beginning of creation in genesis chapter one it tells us in the beginning god created what the heavens and the earth now why are there many heavens well in the cosmological view at the time the bible was written there were layers of heaven the first heaven is the sky where birds fly the second heaven is space where stars and planets are. But the third heaven is where God lives, where God's throne is, where the heavenly beings are. And that third heaven, that's why when the apostle Paul says he was caught up in the spirit to the third heaven, and he doesn't say anything about it, he just says that he went there. That's what he's talking about, the third heaven where God lives. That's why God made heavens and the earth, singular. And so as God made the heavens, we see that there are heavenly beings 
in heaven with him. And when different people, whether it's Isaiah, Ezekiel, John the Beloved, whoever, when we see glimpses of what heaven is like in the Old and New Testament, there are heavenly beings there. God is not alone sitting by himself in heaven. There are heavenly beings there. And we see this, but the Bible doesn't say when God created them. It only says when he created the heavens and the earth and gives us a timeline starting with when he created earth, right? On the first day, second day, third day, and eventually on the sixth day, God creates people. But if we look to the book of Job, we find an interesting passage when God is questioning Job. You know, Job had all his questions, and in Job chapter 38, after Job got done asking God all his questions, God doesn't answer Job's questions. He gives Job more questions. And so he asked this, and, and, and starting in verse 4 of Job chapter 38, God asked Job this, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Well, when did that happen? In Genesis. Tell me if you know so much, who determined its dimensions? Who stretched out the surveying line? Who supports its foundation? And who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, in many translations, including the one that I just read from, the New Living Translation, it doesn't say sons of God. It has a footnote that says that in Hebrew is sons of God. It actually translates it as, as angels in English. But the better translation, the original phrase, is sons of God. And so this is the phrase that is used to refer to heavenly beings. When it talks about how in the situation with the Nephilim in the book of Genesis, where it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men and thought they were beautiful, so they came down and had, you know, physical intimacy with them and had children with them. You know, the, these heavenly beings, their children with human beings were the Nephilim, the giants, right? The, war, the, the heroes of renown. And so these heavenly beings are more than just messengers. When we look at Isaiah and Ezekiel, the ones that surround God's throne who have different faces, one like an ox, one like a human, one like a, you know, all these different things, these are all heavenly beings. And so they're not all messengers. So the word angel is not really the best word, especially when other words are used. So, for example, if you went to Psalm 89, verses 5 through 7, it says that the heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too, in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Now, this passage, along with others, show us that God has heavenly beings that do more than just deliver messages. In this particular passage, it talks about a group of heavenly beings called the Divine Council. And in this passage, when it refers to the Divine Council, it's talking about people that give God advice. Not because God needs it, but because God wants it. And so, when we look at this, why does, why does God worry about this because God wants to. God doesn't need anything. God didn't need to make the heavens and the earth. He didn't need to make heavenly beings and earthly beings, but he wanted to. God doesn't need relationships. He is perfectly satisfied in himself. There is community in the Trinity. But God created these things because he wants to. It gives him good pleasure. God does what he wants. And so as we look at this, we see that not only is the word malak used, but also the word Elohim. 
And this usually gives people pause because we normally translate the word Elohim into the word God. And in our Christian Western mindset, we get antsy when we see the word G-O-D, spelled G-O-D, when it has a lowercase g. When it talks about lowercase g-o-d, we usually assume the worship of pagan gods and idolatry. But do you know that in passages like Psalm 82.6, it says, I said, this is God talking about, you are gods and all of you sons of the Most High. And so this is something that we see. The word Elohim is used there and God calls them Elohim. He calls them gods. Does that mean that they're equal to him? No, because while many times the word Elohim does refer to God, capital G-O-D, that's because he is a heavenly being. He is a spiritual being. The scripture says that God is spirit and all who worship him have to worship him in spirit and truth. That's what Jesus told the woman at the well in Samaria, that the father is looking for those who will worship him that way. So what do we know so far? We know that God has a heavenly family and an earthly family. The heavenly beings do many things. They are messengers that we call angels. They are divine counsel that we see, and we see this in numerous places. We see this in the book of Daniel, when Daniel sees the heavens. We see this in the book of Job, you know, like in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, when the one like a son of man is given all power and authority. God is surrounded by heavenly beings, by his divine counsel. We see this in um, the situation where um, King Ahab is about to go to war and the prophet Micaiah gives him a prophecy. He says that he saw in heaven, in the spirit, where God had a, a meeting with his divine counsel and sat down with them and said, who will lead this situation to cause Ahab's death? And one of the spirits says, I will mislead the prophets. And God says, yes, you will <laughs> go do that. Not because God needed advice from a divine counsel from a heavenly court, but he wanted them. And so why would God do this in the first place? And so as we look at this, we have to add another piece of the puzzle. When God created the heavens and the earth, God eventually, the goal was for them to um, rule the earth and govern it. That was the goal. That in the beginning, and when God creates Adam and Eve, he tells them to fill the earth and govern it, to subdue it, to run it. And as they did that, that was their goal. But eventually, after they sinned, then God eventually took the leadership away from human beings at the Tower of Babel. And as we you know, look at this idea, we understand that... Um, God wants this for people, but people couldn't handle it. They were using their authority on the earth. And God says at the Tower of Babel in the beginning of the book of Genesis, he says they can do whatever they want to and nothing can stop them. So God splits them up into different nations. And the table of nations, the 70 nations that made up the world at that time, was when God broke the, the world up and into pieces at that point. But look at something that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 32, starting in verse 7. And remember the days of long ago. Think about the generations past. Ask your father and he will inform you. Inquire of your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High assigned the lands to the nations. That's 
the Genesis rebellion at the Tower of Babel. When he divided up the human race, he established the boundaries of his peoples. But then he says this, according to the numbers of his heavenly court. And so as we look at this, why why would God do that? He gave every member of his heavenly court a part of the world to rule, a nation to rule over. But in the passage in Psalm 82, we see that God goes on to tell them that they're going to this heavenly council, that they were going to die like men. Why? Because they have led the, the human beings, led the world to sin. What was that? That was because these pagan um, gods came from the heavenly court. If you read the writings in like the Targums or the book of the giants and things like we see that the heavenly beings that were supposed to rule over the nations of the world that God put in his divine counsel did not do this well. It actually led them. They came down to earth and led them to worship them instead of the one true God. And God punished them as, as a result. So we see there are angels, heavenly messengers, there's the divine council, and there's a third group of people, that are a third group of heavenly beings that are worth mentioning, and that is the heavenly host. It's also called the armies of God. God is referred to as the Lord of heaven's armies throughout the Old Testament. We don't see that as much in the New Testament, but we see this, for example, in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says, You alone are the Lord, you have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and everything in it. And so the host of heaven are heavenly beings that God has as his armies. As He has countless ones of them. Does God need an army to fight his battles? No. But God emulates what a king would be expected to have. A king would be expected to have a divine, a council, right? A royal court that comes and gives them advice. A king would be expected to have armies. And a king would be expected to have guardians, guards that protect the king. We see a very interesting passage in the book of Ezekiel. In the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 28, God gives the prophet Ezekiel a message for the king of Tyre and tells him that he has been worshipped as a god, has set himself up as divine, but God says, hey, you're, you're going to end up getting your desserts, your just desserts. You're going to be punished, and, and you're going to have all of these things happen to you to show you. Look at what he says in verse 9. When you boast, will you then boast, I am a god to those who kill you? To them you will be no god but merely a man. You will die like an outcast at the hands of foreigners. I, the sovereign Lord, had spoken. Right? Sovereign means, means high ranking, set apart with authority. And God is telling the king of Tyre, you're not a god. I'm the one true God. But he says this afterwards. He says, he gives a message to, the, the, to Ezekiel and says, Son of man, sing this funeral song for the king of Tyre to give him this message from the sovereign Lord. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone, red carnelian, pale green peridot, white moonstone, all these different ones. And he says this, all crafted and set in the finest gold. They were given to you on the day you were created. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. You were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. 
You were rich, your rich commerce led you to violence, and you sinned, so I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from your place among the stones of fire. And he has a bunch of other stuff that he talks about. But is this talking about the king of Tyre? This is a funeral song for him. But was the king of Tyre in Eden? Was he walking among the stones of fire on the mountain of God? Was he in, you know, the, the, the beginning of time? No way. So where did this funeral song come from? Many scholars agree this is a song that was sung about the person we call Satan, Lucifer. Now the word Satan means the accuser, and we see that word pop up long before the, the Satan we think of comes up, where Satan goes from being a job title Hasatan means the accuser. It's a job title for a heavenly being. We see that in the book of Job. The Satan in the book of Job is not Lucifer. That is a heavenly being whose job is to accuse people in front of God and, and tell all the things they're doing wrong when God brings them to judgment. But the Satan we think of, Lucifer, was in Eden. We saw that in Genesis when the serpent comes and talks to Eve and Adam and deceives them. Why in the world would they be okay with talking to a snake? Because in Mesopotamian cultures, the guardians of the, the, the throne where the king sat wore armor that looked like snakes. They were angelic guardians. They were guardian you know, cherubs. They were heavenly guardians to God. Not because God needs guarding. You can't hurt God. But it was something that they did. So Lucifer wasn't literally a snake. He was symbolized as one because throne guardians wore, wore armor like saying he was a heavenly being. That's why Adam and Eve trusted him, because he was in front of God's throne all the time, not because God needs protecting, because that's what God wanted to do. And we see that Satan, Lucifer, the morning star, whatever name you want to give him, was a throne guardian, a heavenly being that guarded God's throne in Eden. The Garden of Eden, also called the Mountain of God. Why do they call it that? Because in Mesopotamian cultures, the gods lived on the mountains, and they lived in guardians. They were the opposite of where human beings lived down on the earth in deserts and in rough wilderness. All right. So we see three categories of heavenly beings, and maybe I've gotten too deep in the weeds, but we see that there are the, you know, the messengers, angels, there's the divine council, there's the heavenly hosts, and then we see that there are some set apart to God, to guard the throne of God. And we see that even in Ezekiel and in Revelation, right? We see beings surrounding God's throne as his guardians. Why does this matter to us for Christmas? Because, number one, we need to know what these heavenly beings are. Number two, we need to understand that God wants to bring all of his family back together. You see, when human beings disobey God, in Genesis, we find out that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. God said, if you eat the fruit, you will surely die. But Adam and Eve lived for centuries after they ate the fruit. Does that mean God's a liar? No, no. Because in God's economy, death does not refer to physical death. In God's economy, death refers to separation. That's why when human beings die, their spirit is separated from their body. That's why we call it death, because it's a separation that happens. Our spirit is separated from our bodies. The body goes in the ground, the spirit goes to God to wait for his return when God will give us heavenly bodies. 
But that's what death is. Death is separation. So when it said that Adam and Eve would surely die, they were separated from God's presence. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the Garden of Eden was the connection point between heaven and earth, and God's throne was there. Heavenly beings and earthly beings were together. That's why Lucifer was able to go to the garden and talk to Adam and Eve, and they didn't freak out. That was normal. Heavenly beings lived with earthly beings. But once the human beings sinned, they became separated. They experienced death. That's why John 3.16 says that anyone who believes, who puts trust in God, will not die but will have eternal life. Well, plenty of people who have trusted in God have experienced physical death, a separation of their spirit from their bodies, but it says they won't die. Why? Because they, at that point we put trust in Jesus, we become reconnected to God again, and we experience a new life in Him. We have been resurrected in God's economy, not physically. We still die, but we have a connection to God. Why does this have anything to do with the Christmas story? Because just like Adam and Eve did things their way and disobeyed God and didn't trust Him, they wanted their will over His will, that brought death, separation from God. Jesus' willingness to be a perfect human being, to die the sacrificial death on the cross, and to submit to God's authority. In the Garden of Eden, what does He say? Not my will, but yours. He did what Adam and Eve did not do. And what that did was not just to give us forgiveness. Yeah, that, that, that's true. It was not just to pay the price, the penalty we deserved. That's true. But what the real goal, and we talked about this at Easter, but this is why the angels are important, that God wants to have relationship with his heavenly family and his earthly family. This is why if you were to go to the book of Luke in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells them, when he's talking about people coming back to God, he says this in verse 7, In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous. It says that, that when this happens, he goes skip down to verse 10, it says, In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels, his heavenly beings, when even one sinner repents. Why do the heavenly hosts of God the armies of heaven, the throne guardians, the divine council, why do the heavenly beings rejoice when one person comes to God? Because their family is being reunited again. One more person has come back home to the family. And the heavenly beings are excited and they rejoice and celebrate when that happens. They shout for joy at God's goodness. So when the angel comes to Mary, Gabriel, when the angel visits Joseph in the dream to start the Christmas story going, the Messiah comes. The angels are excited. The heavenly beings worship and they don't, they don't sing. We talked about that in um, Luke chapter 2 and verse 8 when the, the angels come, the heavenly beings come to the shepherds and tells them, I bring, you know, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in the city of Bethlehem. And he goes down and it says in verse 13, suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those whom God is pleased. Why are the angels rejoicing? Why are they excited? 
because God's plan to bring his earthly family home back to him is starting. So as we look at the nativity scene, I was tempted to skip over the angels, but I hope as we've looked at the heavenly beings, they're not all angels. Some of them are, but some of them are part of the divine council. Some of them are members of the heavenly host. Some of them are throne guardians. Who knows what else there is out there that we don't know, but we know that God wants all of his family to come home, heavenly and earthly. And the great joy, if you read the book of Revelation at the very end, God sets Eden back into place in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. It says this, that God's home is now among his people. The heavenly family and the earthly family can once again be reunited in their worship and celebration of God. And what a beautiful day it will be when God restores everything back to perfection again. So as you go through the Christmas season and you see the angels, I want you to remember you've got, got a family that you're coming home to when you come home to God. An earthly family and a heavenly family. And God wants all of his family to come home. And that's the joy. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Is that God loved the world so much. He gave his one and only son. Now, we've talked about that passage, right? It doesn't mean that God actually had a, a child, right? He didn't have a heavenly mother where he, they procreated and had a child. That's what pagan gods do. God took part of himself, 100% divine, but limited in a human body. And Jesus came into the world, the unique son. That means comes out of that God wrapped himself in flesh and prophecy and came 2,000 years ago so that we could come back home. And so as you go through the Christmas season, that's my encouragement for you, thinking about the angels, the heavenly beings rejoicing in God's presence, not just because a baby was born, but because now God's other children who were lost can now be found. That's why we sing the song, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I pray that this blesses you, that it helps you key more things in. And the next time you look at the nativity scene and you see the angel, Maybe you'll think a little bit differently about them because God wants all of his family to come home. So until next time, be blessed. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We pray that God uses it to inform your mind, improve your life, and ignite your heart with a renewed passion to impact others for the kingdom of God. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you can continue along with us on this journey of restoration living.